Hey everybody, uh, I often implore people to activate their inner honey badgers in chapter 8 of uh, the parasitic mind. Well, today I've got a parental honey badger who decided that uh, he had had enough with some of this uh, nonsense and he wrote a brilliant letter which has now gone viral. Andrew Gutman, how are you doing? I'm very good, thank you for having me. Oh, it's a real pleasure having you. I think you and I uh, first spoke when I became aware of your letter about a month ago, and I, I knew that you needed some time to g gather, yeah. breathe some air. It, it must have been quite extraordinary what you've gone through so far, no? Yeah, I was overwhelmed, and I apologize it's taken so long to connect. I'm really happy to do this. It, I sent this letter, we can talk as much about it as you want, to the 1,200 or so, 1,300 or so parents at my daughter's school, and I never expected it to be read by any more than those parents. But how come, how come you didn't think that it would potentially, I mean, I understand that you didn't come yeah. with an a priori, oh, let's see if this goes viral. But w didn't you think that in the context of the woke, blue-haired people, you were dropping a nuclear bomb on them? I thought it might get picked up in sort of the gossipy New York City kind of press that loves to talk about these fancy, expensive you know, New York City schools. I didn't think from a, you know, it would go viral from sort of the CRT aspect of it. Uh, yeah, so so you didn't know that it was going to go viral from a CRT perspective, but you thought right. that within the context of the New York ecosystem, some people might pay attention to it. Uh, give us, be before we get into the crux of the actual contents of the letter, so is, am I pronouncing, is it Brearley? Is that how you pronounce yeah, it? that's right, exactly. Uh, so it is a it is one of those uh, supremely posh, uh, highfalutin, nose-in-the-air kind of schools where I think $53,000 a, a, a year, is that is that correct? Uh, it's up to 57 now. It's 57. Can, yeah. you explain, can you explain to me using simple words so that I can follow what justifies uh, paying $57,000 for the education of any child? I'm not sure I can justify it. I mean, that's just, the, you know, it's market it's supply. I mean, that's just the market demand in New York City. It is what the going rate is at all of these independent schools in New York City. And we're very lucky we have only one kid. There's obviously families that have two or three or four kids in these schools. You know, we chose really, it, you know, it is sort of, yes, highfalutin and fancy, but we chose it for the education. Uh, it's an all-girls school. It's sort of known as the best all-girls school academically in New York City, perhaps even in the country, in the United States. And I've said this on a number of interviews. Um, you know, one thing that's been disappointing to me and something that we can get into why other parents don't speak up on this issue is that most parents and families, unfortunately, are not really there for the education. They're there because this is a status symbol exactly. uh, in New York City. There's so much wealth in New York City, so many families, for better or for worse, uh, and I've actually written a lot of uh, previous stuff on income inequality. So again, for better or for worse, families uh, can afford these kind of schools in New York City. And so, you know, the price tag is really nothing to a lot of people, but it is so hard to get their kids into these schools. Uh, so it becomes this status symbol. And then it also becomes, this is how you get your kids into the Harvard, Princeton, Yale. It's this ticket to the next step of your kids' lives. Um, so for us, though, it, you know, it wasn't that. It was really about where do we think our daughter will get the best education in New York City. And that's why we chose it seven or eight years ago when we were applying for her for kindergarten. So she had been there since kindergarten, so for seven years. So, so do you think that 
the fact that in your case you you seem to have been genuinely interested in the pedagogic content in the in yeah. the in the process of education that compelled you to differentiate yourself from the other parents and hence speak out and activate your inner honey badger is that the key reason or is there something within your personhood that says well, you know there's a because people ask me you know what you know you have a very very busy career as a as a professor uh, you know you publishing and grants and all this kind of stuff why do you spend so much time in public engagement and i say because i can't help but do this because it's just my nature because i i despise bullshit i feel personally offended by all the nonsense and therefore i activate my inner honey badger as a default value so it, it, it how much of each of those two factors caused you to be the parent who blew the lid on the whole thing I think it's a combination of both. Like you just said, we, you know, we've been, I've always been very passionate about education and I have sort of strong views on what, what an ideal education looks like. And it's pretty different from even what these schools were teaching prior to this cancer of critical race theory. And, um, I, and we could talk more about that if you like. So I think it's partly that, and it's partly somebody had to do the right thing here. Um, you know, the, 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 what has happened in these schools is so damaging, I think, to our kids, so damaging to our to these schools, so damaging to New York City, so damaging to the country and the world, that somebody had to do this. I thought I could do it because professionally, unlike a lot of other people, I'm not cancelable. Uh, and so I said, look, I can do this. We had already decided that we were not going to enroll our daughter for next year. Uh, so I didn't care about pissing off the school at that point. And, you know, I said, look, someone has to be virtuous here. Someone has to you know, put themselves on the line with the hope that other parents will now speak up and we can try, at least start to effectuate some change in these schools. So that, you know, that's, that's why I did it. Okay, so uh, again, we're going to get to so much of the, the content of the letter, but the, the, all the, the psychological and family dynamics are also of great interest to me. So you start seeing all this nonsense when? Is it something that you've been seeing? For, she's in grade six, your daughter, correct? So would you have been previously exposed to the, to use my, my parlance, the parasitic ideas, or is this something that, that you found out about this year only? So I think we saw this creeping into the school over the last few years, uh, and not just on the race issue, on sort of sexuality issues, on you know, the trans movement issues, on, um, and her school being an all-girls school has always paid a lot of attention to some of those issues. Um, but not anywhere near enough where we would have ever considered pulling our kid out of the school. Not anywhere near enough where we would have said, this education just isn't right. It's right. just, you know, it was the last year. And I've heard, you know, many, many other parents say the same thing, at least in New York City. It was last summer, the events of Black Lives Matter, of George Floyd, of, uh, there were these Instagram accounts all over the country, black at uh, my daughter's school, really black at all these other schools that really was like a night and day, a switch went off in these schools uh, where they just ramped up these, you know, what they call the anti-racism initiatives, what now collectively we sort of call the critical race theory uh, stuff, the social justice, night and day about a year ago. Uh, and so in September, they, you know, I, we can talk more, I thought of sending this letter back at the beginning of the school year and said, you know what, let's see if we can rally other parents and get them to speak up. And because I know that an awful lot of other parents, and I, I think it's more than half, significantly more than half of the other parents at schools like Rarely do not agree with the direction of these schools. Uh, but and they yet are you're the only, 
and you are the only one who speaks that. Well, that speaks. So let me draw. I'm not the only one. Um, but I, I mean, I was obviously the only one that did it publicly like this. Well, there, there are a couple of constituencies that I found out have spoken out a little bit, but not either. They're not taken seriously or not very forcibly. Right. So, so I wasn't really the only. But but to do it publicly like this, I you know was one of the few. Right. Well, but but I mean that distinction is the is the crux of the matter because to to take a position but to do so with the, within the privacy of your thoughts or or of your sauna is not doesn't really require much courage but to do it in a public manner the way that you have that that's the whole point right uh, yeah I, look I, I mean there's, there was another school that had gotten a lot of press Dalton which had uh, you know. Parents sign letters anonymously, but nobody was willing to put their name on it. So let's 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 look at that. First, what I wanted to do is uh, before I before I go to the next uh, train of thought, uh, there is a very similar dynamic that takes place takes place in my reality, and, and I've been at this for much longer, if I may say, than when you yes. entered the fray, because I've been fighting this nonsense for well over two decades in academia, where all of these ideas are originally spawned, yeah. and uh, I receive innumerable emails from professors so to, to, to analogize to your fellow parents i receive uh, uh, emails from professors thank you so much dr sad you're my you know uh, life uh, life vest to sanity oh but please don't mention my name that i wrote to you so so fellow professors are not even are not sufficiently courageous let alone for them to speak out to even publicly stand with the one who speaks out so i guess then the next question is what explains that cowardice in your context? In my case, it'll be, oh, but you know, professor, I don't have tenure or I'd like to get full professorship. So unlike when you said, I'm uncancelable, you remember you said that a few minutes ago, yeah. Yeah. I would suspect that a lot of the other parents who are also, you know, well off and so on are likely to be uncancelable. So is it that they're afraid to be ostracized? What's the fear driving their cowardice? That, no, that, that's a great question. That's something I've addressed a lot. So um, th there's a number of, of these, you know, why are you cancelable issues? So one is if you work at a, you know, almost any firm now uh, where you risk losing your job. You know, work at a Goldman Sachs, you work at a big law firm, you work at a McKinsey, and you just can't speak up on this for fear of risking, you know, your job. The second is the fear of uh, not having the school's help with your kid in terms of college admissions. And, or if you're sending, want to send your kid earlier to boarding school with the admissions process, you need the recommendations, you need the school's help in that. So there's that aspect of it. The bigger thing, and this really addresses your point, is what I thought was you have these some very, we're, we're sort of very middle class for New York City private school. We are, you know, I'm, you know for the United States, I'm sure we're wealthy, but for New York City, we're middle class. You have these, you know, billionaire type people, families on the board of trustees of these schools. You would think that those people, they have enough money, they could be the ones that say, okay, enough, stop, this education's horrible, this is bad. I found, and a lot of other people have said the same thing, they're the ones that fear the most of speaking up, of being canceled, because they lose all their social steps. They will get thrown off the board of, of, you know, of Lincoln Center or of the Met or of some other museum or whatever their social status is. It's the hardest, I found, to get them to speak up. It's unbelievable. Uh, this, it, it is. And this, you know, where there's really no virtue in this world, and I think a lot of that has to do with how much money there is in this world. But, you know, it, it, it's very, very difficult to get any parents to speak up on these issues. It, and, and I've said this a number of times. You know, we don't even come close to solving the, the CRT, the education issues, the free speech issues, 
if we can't solve cancel culture issues. And we're nowhere near solving these cancel culture issues. Unbelievable. So when you decided, okay, you know what? I think I'm going to draft this letter. I think I'm going to hit that send button. Uh, I mailed I, You mailed it? Six, yeah, I mailed it. I had the paper cuts. <laughs> not anymore, but oh yeah, I stuffed uh, 656 envelopes. You, you went uh, old school. Uh, I think old school, yes. Right. That, that this reminds me of the Seinfeld episode where his... Yes. Uh, the, yeah, they were not lickable. No, no. I got the self-adhesive. I was very worried about that. So I got the self-adhesive. Okay, you... you, you uh, I, was, I tell you this. My wife helped a little bit. My daughter refused to help. So I stuffed all these envelopes over a couple of days. I put all the stamps on. And I actually, I didn't get very many paper because I got to an alphabetical order. I got until W before I got my first paper cut. Ah, well, that's pretty good. That's I know I was see a drop of blood on the, on the table. I'm like, oh, you know, shit. But uh, time out. So your wife was on board. Did she exhibit any tepidness? Was she as, as gung-ho as you? What, what was that, what was that yeah. dynamic like? She was on board and she recognized that, that she was on board with removing her kid, as was my daughter. If I was going to ask you wanted, that next, yeah. actually. Okay. If my daughter had wanted to stay in the school, we would have absolutely let her. It was a really hard decision at the end of the day, and we would have tried to fight this within the school. But she recognized the education she was getting or not getting, so she was on board. My wife was absolutely on board. She didn't. She, this isn't her fight. So the letter came from just me, not from both of us. She didn't want to be the front person on this fight, but she was very supportive of this effort um, and very frustrated with what was going on in the school. So all three of us, it was really a joint family decision. Did, did, did you explain to your daughter the possible repercussions that you referred to? Oh, you know, this might worsen your likelihood of attending, you know, the real Ivy League school, Cornell University, where Dr. Saad is an alumnus. Uh, no, but seriously, did you, did yeah. you, did she understand the possible yeah. repercussions? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And oh, she yeah. didn't care. She was fine. Yeah, and, and you know we talk. We don't know. We, we don't know where she's going to go to school next year, and we'll figure it out. I mean, my wife's more stressed about it than I am. My view at this, like, we'll we'll find something for her to do. And I've had a lot of schools actually reach out to me, not necessarily in New York City. But look, if she never goes to school again, at this point, I don't really care. I want because I don't know if there's any place, certainly not in New York City, to get a good education now. Um, hopefully, that'll change, and we'll try and effectuate some change. But she understood it, and she. One of the things that she and I have always discussed, I sort of have a passion for history. And she and I, since she was little, have read a lot of history. And that's one of the subject matters that has always been taught poorly, but has really been changed and eradicated with things like, you know, the 1619 Project here yes. in the United States. And so, you know, she, she is of the same mindset, both in terms of, you know, we should fight this, because she's fought this a little bit. She has stood up in her own classroom on some of this stuff. Um, going back a few years and being very courageous at that. How long did it take for the teacher to accuse her of being a Nazi Jewish bigot? They don't go that far. They're pretty respectful. But there was, a, I think, last year or or two years ago, I think it was in fifth grade. So last year, there was a discussion of should we, in the United States, uh, get rid of all these statues, Confederate soldier statues, Robert E. Lee's and stuff like that. And now we're seeing them, you know, take down statues of Abraham Lincoln and George Washington and Winston Churchill all over the world, which I'm sure you probably have talked about or written about. Sure. Uh, so, you know, she spoke up in her class, and this is a history class, with a very good teacher, actually, uh, and said, you know, I don't think we should be taking down these statues. I think we should be explaining them, but you cannot eradicate history. So this is for an 11 or 12-year-old, I think, and it's something we had discussed. 
um, I think was very courageous, and she was the only one in her class. And again, these are smart kids. This is New York City, which is, you know, was historically a bastion of free speech and critical thinking. It's completely different now. Completely, I don't recognize it. Um, but she has always sort of, you know, spoken up on these issues. So she recognizes the need to fight on this, even at 12 years old. So I'm very proud of her. Um, I can talk a little bit about what happened after we sent the letter and we got a response from the school. So, so but, let, yeah, let's 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 hold off on that. Let's get okay. into the meat of the letter now. In a in a previous uh, clip uh, that I released maybe a month ago, I actually read your letter, and I I highly encourage everyone to actually. I'll put a link uh, in the eventual once when this is eventually posted. A link to I think it's still on Barry Weiss's. Uh, it's on ours, and it's on my own site also. Whichever you want to link ah, to. Okay, perfect. Yeah. Uh, so people should actually go read it because it's 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 you know it it strikes I think the right tone. You're you're polite. You're respectful. You're but yet you're indignant. That certainly comes across. So let's break down. So I mean, because I listed here. I mean, you talked about systemic racism. You talked yeah. about what I call the die religion: diversity, inclusion, and equity. Talked about BLM, critical race theory, lack of critical thinking. So start us wherever you want. How did you draft this letter? How did you decide which parts to address and so on? Go through the process. Yeah, you know, I, I, I've been thinking about these ideas again since the beginning of the school year. And so I pretty much knew what I wanted to cover. Um, all, you know, all the key points. I, I sort of knew the tone, which was to be, you know, as aggressive as I could be without crossing the line. And, you know, I think the, the one area that, you know, the, one, the, the area really which we can talk about, which got the most criticism from people who actually read it, was the systemic racism aspect of it. That uh, you're denying it, that there is no systemic racism. That's right. By you doing that, you're part of white supremacy. That, that's right. So the, you know, and, and what a lot of people who, who read it superficially or didn't read it at all were assuming I'm saying there's no racism in this country. That's absurd. Of course, there's racism. What I was trying to do is say, really, that the critical race theories movement's definition of systemic racism is wrong. And I vehemently disagree with this definition that basically any outcome where blacks are underrepresented in, in anywhere in society, in education, in, in anything professionally, is by definition systemic racism. So I, that, that's the point I was trying to make. I don't believe that to be the case. So if I were to just summarize that using other terms that some people may know, it's the old conflating of equality of opportunities with equality of outcomes, basically. That, that's exactly right. It's a, it, it's, we've gone from the meritocracy to this Marxist system of equality, and, which, is, which is the cancer of the parasite yeah. you know, in society. So that was actually the, the section that was, I would say, I wrote, so I, I had all the ideas and then it took about a day and a half to write the letter and get it to the point where I was pretty happy with it. And the only people that had read it before it went out was my wife and my daughter. Um, and what was their, were they all, okay, this is all good, or change this, do that? How many, no, how no, many no, rounds no, did we go no, through? No, keep, you know, a typo here and there, but no, they were good. My, they, they really liked it. They thought it was good. I thought it was good. I knew it was good. I didn't expect to get the reaction that I did, not just on the content, but on you know quality of the prose. Yeah. I, didn't, I, didn't, I, I got some very, very nice feedback from some very powerful writers well it was a very very well written eloquent letter uh, add me to the list of uh complimenters if i can put it that way yeah i had a few i had a few presidential speech writers that reached out to me uh some very prominent journalists so that was flattering um was very nice but yeah the systemic racism was probably the hardest because there was a lot more i wanted to say on that talk about white guilt i had just read uh, a book by shelby Steele. Um, called White Guilt, right before I read a month or two before I read the letter. So that was kind of in my head a little bit. 
So that was probably where I um, would have liked to have put some more content in there. And I knew that was the controversial part where I said we haven't had systemic racism since the civil rights era. Again, of course we've had racism, right? But my issue with what we're defining as systemic racism or institutional racism. Well, but, and I mean, to, 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 to state that or to concede the point that there's still racism is simply to state, and I don't mean to, 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 uh, to minimize that reality, yeah. but it's to simply state that humans exist because, <laughs> because <laughs> the, you know, part of the repertoire of the human condition, regrettably, is to succumb to us versus them tribalism, which then leads to, oftentimes to racism. So you show me a, a society that doesn't have a singular manifestation of a racist thought or act, and I'll show you pigs that fly. So, so the fact that you concede the point that, well, of course, the U.S. still has racism, it's equivalent to saying, well, of course, humans still exist on Earth. That's right. And I tried to make that point. Since it's evolutionary, that's exactly right. I thought it was so obvious a point that I didn't need to make it. But of course, you know, I was America's number one racist on Twitter for a day, uh, which I tried to avoid. It, I, you know, I, I, I saw, by the way, forgive me for interrupting you, Andrew. I saw, by the way, just as I was preparing for our chat, maybe 10 minutes before we came on, I, I, I did a search on you because I wanted to see what was the reaction. And there was a one article, maybe the, the worst one, at least that's the main one that came up on top of the Google thing, by a black lady where, you know, Jewish banker and racist. And I was reading this and I simply, I mean, I, the irony was lost on her because she seemed to be seething of, of sort of this innate hatred, right? Yeah, look, I mean, I, I avoided all that stuff and, and I was called a lot of different things. Uh, wealthy Jewish banker, which I'm really not, I'm a Jewish, yes, but not very wealthy from New York and, and not a banker anymore. Yeah, I mean, you know, there was a reaction, there was a letter written by, a rebuttal letter written by six moms of my daughter's grade that went out to the whole school for signatures and got very, very few signatures because it was awful, to be frank. And I think it got leaked a little bit, you can probably find it. Um, you know, it, it was sort of the, the, the typical, this was a violent racist rant. And he's just looking for his 15 minutes of fame. And then it goes into the really scary part, which is which I wrote about on something which about indoctrination. But, you know, that was a typical reaction. This is just a racist rant. Um, How my, did you feel? View, did you did you? Uh, because I remember when I first reached out to you, I, I don't think you'll mind me saying this. You said, you know, oh, I'd love to come on your show, but I just need to kind of gather myself so, because I wasn't yeah. ready for this. So how did I you react? So to this? Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, this was a shock. So. We didn't eat, my wife and I didn't eat or sleep for the first five days. And it wasn't, I mean, I, obviously a little bit, but yeah, yeah. really, I actually lost some weight and I'm thin to begin with. Uh, and I haven't yet gained it back. But so I didn't, you know, I'll tell you what happened, which is I sent this letter out on a Wednesday and mailed it. And I didn't know when it would arrive. I didn't know what would happen. Friday afternoon, I got a call like around one o'clock from a mom of a first grader saying I received this. And she was very supportive. And then I got another call. And then I checked my inbox. And Barry Weiss had emailed me saying, like, six different people had sent her this letter. Can I talk? And then it blew up. And then the New York Post started calling. And then I had reporters from other places at my door the next day. And then Tucker Carlson, a day or two later, read it, almost the whole letter. They really wanted me on. He read it on his show. And so the first four or five days was just a blur. And I, was, I didn't know what to do. I had never really dealt with the media like this. I was getting advice, including from Barry, look, don't do the conservative media because that's not really your message, which I agree with. And then I wound up 
sort of changing my mind on, on that a little bit. Um, so I really didn't know what to oh, do. Oh, you're going on Fox News, so you must yeah. be a right-wing bigot right. who's right. a Trump supporter. Okay. Exactly. And I, did, you know, I don't believe, A, that's not me, uh, and B, I don't believe we make progress on this issue if it's just a conservative issue. Now, I got different advice later, which I've taken, and, I, and I've done a few appearances, not every appearance, which is, look, if that's the only way to get the message out, because that is the only media that is willing to talk about this right now, and you want to get the message out, then do it. I mean, do it selectively and be careful what you say. And I've been pretty good at, at saying this. And, and, and I've written some op-eds also on this at One in the Hill, which I said, look, this is not just a conservative issue. This crosses the political divide. I have thousands of emails. Literally, I think I'm up to something like 4,000 emails from people around the country. A lot of them identify themselves as Democrat or liberal and say, you know, we are desperate to fix this education. We, we are feeling hopeless. Our kids are going through this. You know, what do we do? So this is not just a conservative issue. So, again, to go back to your question, you know, the first few days were just overwhelming. And I didn't know, you know, what the right thing to do was. And so it just completely caught my surprise. Wow. Now, ha- ha- have I didn't you been- care. I didn't really care about being called a racist at that point. Right. Good. Well, I was that's very comfortable with everything I had written. Yeah. Well, I, I tried. Said, well, to- I don't care. I try to demystify that threat, right? And in, in, in one of the last passages of the parasitic mind, I try to explain to people, you could criticize Islam without being Islamophobic. You can criticize some of the insane uh, positions espoused by the transgender activists with, while being fully socially liberal and wanting transgender people to have full dignity and live free of bigotry. You can uh, not support militant feminism that rejects sex differences as as you know, evolutionary-based differences without being a patriarchal, misogynist pig. Uh, But yet people are so terrified of the lock and loaded threat of being accused of being a bigot that they'd rather die at the hand of ISIS than to potentially be accused of being a bigot. So if you demystify this and kind of go like this, then they lose their power because there's no threat over you anymore. But it's such, it has become the biggest slur around to be called a racist. I'll tell you a funny story, which is, when I was considering whether or not to go on Fox, I, I had a connection to a guy who, who is, is sort of uh, writes on COVID stuff but from a non-mainstream way. He's very well known on Twitter, and he goes on Fox a lot. And uh, I reached out to him and said, look, I know you've had diff- the same kind of issue. Does his name rhyme with uh, Schmalix Perinson? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. So, so, you know, I said, look, I know you've dealt with the same thing, which is, you know, you, you didn't want this to be a conservative issue, but CNN is not calling you, and the New York Times, where he used to work, is not calling. And um, and he said, you know, and I said, you've been dealing with this a year, and uh, you know, how do you deal with this all this? And he goes, well, you know, it's only COVID, it's not race. <laughs> I wouldn't touch race, and, and I didn't realize, and you know, the third rail of uh, of uh, you know how powerful and scary and terrifying it is to be called a racist. I mean, and I had really never been called racist in my life until my letter came out. Wow. Um, and, you know, we, we, you know, my, my, my wife was sort of the social chair of our, uh, of our grade. We'd set up coffees and lunches and meetings and, and dinners with all the other moms. My daughter probably had more playdates when she was little with more kids of every race than probably any other kid in the grade. I mean, we were the definition of inclusive. Ah, this proves you're racist because when you say I have black friends, right, you exactly. are trying that's to overcompensate right. for your latent right. racism. So this proves that, sorry, buddy, you're a that's racist. Right. I know. And it is, you know, it, it, is, it is what it is. I mean, I, you, look, I'm not going to worry about what the internet 
thinks of me. Right. I'm not worried about it. I'm not going to apologize. I wrote, I'm very comfortable with everything I wrote in that letter. I'm very comfortable with everything I've ever written publicly. Not to say it's always right, but I'm very comfortable with it. And you want to call me racist, call me racist. Have you been invited now since the letter first came out by anybody from the uh, noble progressives uh, to, to come on their media? You know, uh, my no. hero, Rachel Maddow, or some of the other no. super... Nothing. Nothing. No. Well, Nothing at all. And, and I heard that when, you know, when Barry Weiss, who was friendly to me when, when, the, you know, when, when the letter came out and probably the reason it went viral, um, she told me that from the get-go, which is you're not going to get attention from the left-oriented media. Well, Don't listen, I can yeah. tell you this, if I may uh, link it to my personal reality. Uh, my book has been a gigantic international bestseller. I haven't heard yet from a single person on the left, as if the topics that I'm talking about are conservative topics. The, my publisher, that they're absolutely fantastic, Regnery, is known as a conservative imprint, right? But the reality is classical liberalism today has found a home amongst the conservatives, which is regrettable. I mean, not regrettable in that the conservatives are bad, but that it, what an upside-down world we live in where for you to get such a message like your letter or my book, yeah. it's the conservatives that are espousing those views today. That's right. And, and that's been, I will say that has been by far the biggest frustration for me is that it's only been conservative media. Uh, not that I care that much about being labeled the right-wing conservative that I'm really not, although obviously these views have been taken up by you know, the conservative media. Right. It, it's that we don't win on this issue if we can't get the center and the center left. We've lost the progressives. They're gone. Right. right. Whatever percentage, the 10 percent, 15 percent, whatever the percentage of, of you know, of Americans or, or in other countries that are progressive, they're indoctrinated, they're woke, they're gone. But we need the other 80, 85, 90 percent. The problem is there is almost no way to reach that audience because there is no media that in today's polarized media world that reaches that center left center audience. Yeah. And that's been really frustrating, you know, where it used to be the New York Times would and CNN would not. They, they were so far to the left. And, you know, I've had a lot of discussions with people involved in the CRT movement. And again, a lot of them are conservatives, but not all of them. You know, how, how do we make progress here? How do we reach, you know, the left oriented media? Nobody has any ideas. And then there's a real debate within the movement of should we go on Fox or should we not go on Fox? And I've said I'm not going to do anything to the right of Fox. And I've had a lot of offers to do that. Um, but again, it goes back to what we said earlier, which is, you know what, if we want to get this message out, we have no choice. And that's where I've come out on that. You know, yeah, so like yeah. You know, look, I've, I've faced a similar sort of calculus in my mind because I do get, uh, offers from people very much on the right. I usually, it, the only reason I might refuse a, an invitation because I'm very pragmatic, my, I, I'm in the game of spreading hopefully good ideas. And so I don't care what is the platform. In other words, I don't worry about guilt by proxy or guilt by association. But of course, I do have to be concerned if, for example, a ultra right wing group approaches me who are engaging in conspiratorial thinking, then there is a pragmatic consequence that might affect my message if I am, you know, associated with them. But usually I don't care. I mean, so, for example, to me, uh, you know, I've been approached by Fox countless times and I never hesitate to go there because I actually don't think they're nearly as the, the diabolical as I, I, I actually find them to be a lot more sensible than most of the idiots, the, the blue haired idiots. So, so I agree. That, okay, there you go. I agree with that. No, I agree with that. And you know, I got to be honest, I don't watch any TV. 
And so I never really watched any of this uh, until now. And now I've been on it and I know some other people that have been on it. So I started watching, I mean, not a lot, but um, I agree. It's, it's, it's not what I thought. I mean, I had some offers to go on Russian and Chinese TV and I, that I said, no, cause I don't know, you know, what's going what's on. Good, yeah. Right. Um, uh, what, what, what's happened in terms of your, uh, social network? You said that, you know, your daughter, you know, used to go to all the play dates. Maybe she now receives fewer play dates. Has there been any palpable or, you know, visible or clear uh, ostracizing of the Gutman family as a result of this? Yeah, I mean, a little bit. I mean, you, you sort of find out who your friends are, who your yeah. real friends are, yeah. uh, the people that ignore you, um, the people that support you, even if they don't necessarily agree, although most do, if they're not, even if they're not saying it publicly, at least reach out and say, hey, how are you doing? Are right. you okay? You know, how's your kid? You know, how's how's my daughter doing? Um, and some people now, you know, won't touch us with a ten foot pole. There was a time where I think there was a question: Are we toxic? What's the reaction? What's the reaction going to be? And then there was a sense because there's so much going on behind the scenes that, yeah, no, the vast majority of people, even if they're not willing to speak up, agree with what we did, agree with if not everything we said. The general idea sure. of what I say, and so that that toxicity went away and said, oh, you know, no, they're not toxic. We can reach out to them. We can be seen with them. And I do get recognized now sometimes in New York City. Are you the guy that wrote the letter? You know, and so there's a sense, do I want to be seen with them? Um, <laughs> but I think, but you know, the, the, the people that were your friends that you thought were your friends and that you know haven't even reached out to say how are you or or do a play day, you know, get together with sure. with kid. Yeah, you, we've lost some of that, and now I have. A lot of new friends because I've, I've my network has grown exponentially in the last six seven weeks from you know being part of this movement now. Welcome to the famous club. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, it was very weird because you don't know if this is fifteen minutes. Right. Right. You know, I got a lot of media attention. I was on the cover of the New York Post, which I didn't realize. I mean, they reached out to me. They sent a reporter. They said you're going to be in there on Sunday. I said okay. I don't know what that means. My dad called me that morning and said I got the post. I said, okay, am I in there? He said, yeah, you're on the cover. <laughs> Finally, you've become a success in my eyes, right. son. Right, right. I don't yeah. know if I wanted to be on the cover, but in any case, you know, and, and, and so, you know, it was, you don't know, is it going to go away? And, but it hasn't. Right. I mean, obviously, it's not the first few days, but, you know, I've done a bunch of media appearances. I've written some stuff. I've responded to a lot of people. I've started to get involved in a, in a number of organizations that are in this fight. And people want to talk to me. So it, it doesn't seem like this is just a 15 minutes. And I've decided now to, you know, devote the next chapter of my life to playing some part in this effort. It, it, the effort of against CRT or broader bad ideas? That, that's a good question. I would prefer it to be broader bad ideas. Okay. I have some deeply held views on what are some of the root causes, and as, as I know you do as well. Uh, you know, CRT really just being a symptom of these much better, broader ideas. And I think that the direction, the path that we are on in this country and a lot of the English speaking countries and a lot of the Western world is incredibly scary and dangerous. And if we don't do something, we're headed into something incredibly scary and dangerous. So I would like to address them in a bigger way. I am now known as sort of the CRT education guy. So the question is, can I expand that to discuss more than that? Or Am I better off using whatever notoriety I have to really fight on the education issues? One of the things I like to do is start new schools, and that's obviously a time-consuming process. Yeah. Um, so I'm still figuring out, and that's what I've really been doing over the last you know, six, seven weeks, 
how can I best make an impact here? Are you I don't connected? Care about fame and fortune, but how can I make an impact? On Are you? Well, that's that's very honorable and laudable. Have you? I'm, I'm sure you have, but let me ask yeah. it anyway. Have you been in contact with uh, Christopher Rufo? Actually, I met him last night. <laughs> oh, okay, very good. <laughs> on, an, on, a, on a private event that uh, the Manhattan Institute did, okay. that that he and uh, someone at the Manhattan Institute really hosted for fighting back in New York City, and there were a bunch of New York City parents that are involved in this fight. And then uh, I think we're going to connect because he was very interested in the idea of starting schools, and I mentioned that. Right. Um, so yes, I, I haven't yet, but I uh, I think we will. Very. That's soon. wonderful because I had him so. Uh, uh, you know, I have a whole bunch of banked shows that will be released hopefully soon this summer. And uh, one of the banked shows preceding the chat that we're having today is with Christopher Rufo. So it'll be kind of nice to have your two conversations released close to each other because you're both tackling CRT, but from a slightly different perspective. In his case, he's become sort of the central repository of all of the efforts to litigate CRT, right? And so I, I, I'm always... Uh, pleased and it gives me great solace when I see him tweet something out like here is the latest in Arkansas or here's the latest you know and so in a sense if you have a two-pronged attack I mean he, he he's helping on the legal front you're going to the roots of uh, you know not having the children parasitized you know when they're seven years old I think that's a that's a much better way of tackling the problem yeah no I'm a big fan of what he's done I've read a lot of what he's what he's written and seen him on a number of podcasts um, I mean, he's been the leader of this fight really for long, you know, for in CRT specifically, yeah, yeah. for quite longer than anybody in exposing a lot of what was happening, not just at schools, in companies, in the military, in government. And so I'm very excited to meet him. And, I'm, I'm, and maybe there, there are things that we can do together because I agree with what you just said, which is this is a huge fight. We need to fight this on so many different levels, legally and grassroots and private schools and public schools and universities and, you know, corporate boardrooms. And so we, you know, we need all the allies. We need to try to coordinate best we can, and we need to attack this in so many different ways. So I'm really excited to if I can work and, them out. And I, one of the reasons why I was interested in speaking both to you and to Christopher earlier before we came online. Uh, we, we we thought that we might talk about some other stuff that's relevant to my scientific career and you yeah. uh, stated, oh, you know, I, I'm the, am you're speaking, I'm the yeah, amateur, yeah. Whereas yeah. I'm the professional. Well, the reality is that that issue, that distinction arises often when I implore people to get involved and then their answer is, but you're the professional, you're the fancy professor that everybody knows. How can I make a difference? Well, you, Andrew Gutman, Christopher Rufo are living proof that you could have gigantic impact. You didn't come with, I mean, you don't have Joe Rogan's platform. You're not the fancy professor, but guess what? What you're able to now do because you simply had the courage to say, I'm going to stand up and, you know, yeah. attack this yeah. issue. Look where you are now, right? And, and again, you didn't do it because you wanted the fame, but your, your existence in the current context is exactly proving the fact that anybody can have a voice. You didn't plan this. Serendipity led you here. You decided to write a letter that you thought 600 people would read. Look at you now. Christopher Rufo was not planning on being the nemesis of CRT. Look at him now. To me, that's a very empowering message because I keep imploring people to, and by the way, they may not become Andrew Gutman and speak with Tucker Carlson, but they can still affect change within their sphere of influence. So, so maybe you could speak to that a bit. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. Because so I think I said earlier, I mean, I, I have been reached out to by thousands of people, and my inbox is—I mean, it's, it's, been, it's been overwhelming, and it's good and bad. And the good is that it's been almost unanimously support, overwhelmingly support. 
And people are saying to me, they, you know, I've given them the courage to speak up. And that they've seen other people do it, and they are doing it. And they told me, I, I have you know, all these stories of people that said, you know, I, I went to my local board meeting, I wrote a letter to my school, I'm organizing parents. That is incredibly, it's not satisfying from a personal standpoint, because I don't care about that. It's satisfying from the standpoint that parents and grandparents and other concerned citizens that know what's going on, that realize how dangerous and damaging this is to our kids and our education and our country, that they are starting to speak up. And again, I said my goal was to, to sort of light the match at Brearley, and that I helped a little bit light this match or contributed to that nationwide. And, and I've had emails from people you know, outside the United States as well. Um, I think that's great. Now, the flip side of that, all these emails, these thousands of emails, is I had no idea when I wrote this letter how pervasive and entrenched CRT had already become everywhere. I knew it was in New York City schools. I knew it was in some fancy California schools. I had no idea how quickly this had, uh, you know, to use your, you know, being a parasite, how quickly this had spread and how entrenched it had already gotten everywhere, every state. I think I probably have emails from all 50 states. Yeah. People in public school, people in private school, even religious schools. Obviously, at the university level, it's even that much worse. Oh, you cannot imagine. I mean, if you, if you think, I mean... But first of all, all these ideas start within the ecosystem of the university. So there is no context where you see the lunacy more than in academia, because yeah. that's where they're the promulgators of all this nonsense. So I'll give you a, a great example, Andrew. Uh, diversity, inclusion, equity is now the primary means by which we grant chair professorships, right? So the, the highest possible academic uh, you know, title so, for example, what I call the Canada Research Chairs, which is the Canadian government is the endower of these chairs. Now you have to give a, you know, a, a die statement when you're applying for a grant. And if, you, and if you don't pass the die statement, you know, the fact that maybe your research is going to solve cancer is really subsu is not as important as being true to die. First you clear die, then you, you cure cancer. Uh, I'm, I'm, it sounds as though I'm being facetious, but I'm, no, I'm really not. I believe it because I have heard from I, I got adopted in this informal canceled press professor support group. <laughs> a bunch of pretty prominent professors who have had their own cancellation sort of adopted me, and they're dealing with some in litigation, some uh, you know are still teaching or not. Um, I and I've had a number of conversations with you know professors like yourself where I, you know it's horrific <laughs> what is going on at the university level. Um, I spoke to two prominent law professors who have been teaching for a very, very long time, you know, about what's going on and, you know, is this fixable? And they don't think it is. They think, you know, absent civil war, we are not fixing yeah. the university system. I did a, a talk with a group from Princeton. Um, that's just, I think, James Madison group. So uh, a lot of folks that have really been the leaders on speaking out on free speech issues at the university for decades about how bad these things are. So I didn't realize that. But I realize that now, I mean, I'm focusing really on the K through 12 issues, but it's even that much worse. I recognize now. But, but, but by the way, the, the K to 12 issue, there's a there's a great uh, I mean, I'm going to paraphrase his quote. I don't remember the exact quote. Richard Dawkins, the, the famous uh, atheist and evolutionary biologist and zoologist, who, you know, who's no fan of religion, has argued that, you know, why is it that you can access a child straight out of the womb? Uh, to, to, you know, to, to indoctrinate them with your preferred religious narrative, right? And I link it to, as, as someone who 
studies and teaches you know consumer psychology so you have laws that don't allow companies to target a child to sell them chewing gum because the idea is that the child doesn't have the cognitive and emotional acuity to be able to build a counter argument to your persuasion attempts so mm -hmm. we can't target children to sell them chewing gum but we can target children straight out of the womb with our religious ideas yeah. and we can certainly target them as you found out with all of these parasitic ideas so the the irony is simply baffling yeah i mean you know what we're seeing in schools that you know this is starting is you know in kindergarten and five years old in some cases early enough i, I agree with dawkins on, on what you just said but you know there, there's the argument that okay you know the morality and this is a very what the conservatives really argue that morality should be up to the family Right. Now, you could still you would make the Dawkins argument, I think, that, uh, you know, those kind of decisions should be up to the kid when they're old enough to have, you know, where their mind, their brains are mature enough where they can think through this critically and make their own decisions. Then I, I'm sympathetic to that argument. But um, but I'm all you know, I'm also sympathetic to some extent to the argument that it sure as hell shouldn't be the schools. Right. You know, doing this. It's, so, OK, maybe it shouldn't even be the parents it should be up to the kid. But for sure, it shouldn't be the schools that are indoctrinating, that are forcing this morality and, and this awful morality, this, you know, what is really racism in the CRT issue or this victim oppressor, you know, dichotomy, you know, from the CRT standpoint, or to take it more broadly in, you know, in the parasitic, you know, aspect, this not critical thinking, this not free speech, this terror of speaking out in the classroom, which is really what's going on. And it's going on, I know at the university level, it's going on in this whole K through 12 now, or, you know, uh, um, education system. Have you had anybody who subsequent to reading your letter, thinking mm -hmm. about it, maybe engaging you within your uh, social you know, network, come back to you and say, you know, I've actually moved towards your viewpoint. H have you received any concrete feedback like this that at least shows some movement for someone? I think that where you get to, I'll answer that in two ways. I, I think there's movement in the exposure. Not every parent realizes what's going on. And that's a big problem, is how do we educate parents? Now, in my daughter's school, we were forced to do, for parents, mandatory anti-racism training. So we had to sit through these two Zoom sessions, uh, an hour and a half each, I think, on what is being taught in these schools, what are these definitions. But that's unusual because my daughter's school went so far off the deep end on this that right. we actually had to do this mandatory training. Um, so parents were to some extent aware of this. At other schools, not so aware. So I think, you know, again, I didn't write the letter to educate anybody. I didn't write the letter to change anybody's minds. I wrote it to really give the other parents cover to speak up. But I think there is a realization. And, and, you know, especially when it comes from a school like my daughter's which is very, very well known for being this terrific, you know, 140 years of this terrific educational institution to say, oh my goodness, this guy pulled this kid out of that school, right? This is not just some random average school, this is this school. He wrote a very, even if you don't agree with everything, you know, he wrote a pretty powerful letter here. Maybe there is something going on that we didn't realize. Now again, if you just call it racist, you're not gonna you're not going to see that. So I think there's a realization that this is really serious. Someone actually pulled their kid out of a school like this, um, and and you know you see him on TV, and he's he's not a crazy right wing nutcase. Right. And so I do think that helps. Uh, the second short answer to your question is, so I, in all these emails I've gotten in, in the thousands of emails, it's probably 
Maybe 20 or 25 have been negative. Of which half are just nasty or stupid, and half are reasonable. You know, I can't write to everybody back. I, I try, I can't, it's impossible. And I try to write to some people back. But the ones that I answer first tend to be the respectfully negative ones. Right. And I don't want to say I've changed anybody's mind, but I definitely feel like in a number of cases, I've moved people. And, and some of them identify themselves as black. And, and I said, listen, this is not about race. My letter was really not about race. It's about the inability to have a discussion about right. race. And the fact that democracy doesn't work if we can't have a discussion. And it's about the indoctrination. I'm not saying don't teach slavery. I'm not saying don't teach Jim Crow. I'm not saying don't teach what we, terrible things we did to the Native Americans. Of course we teach that. I'm not even saying don't have the kids read Kennedy or White Fragility. What I'm saying is if you're going to assign that, also assign Shelby Seal or, or Glenn Lowry or Thomas Sowell. And then let them make their own decision. So that's sort of the message that I've tried to you know, get to some of the people that respectfully disagree. I don't want to say I've changed anybody's mind necessarily. Those people on CRT. But at the very least, I think I've sort of said, look, they, they come to the conclusion, I'm not this white supremacist racist. I'm actually caring about education and kids. And I've said this. You can disagree with my definition of systemic racism. That's fine. We should be able to have a debate. And that's fine. What I'm saying is we are not allowed to have that debate. And we yeah. need to have that debate. So yeah. that's my long-winded answer to your question. Yeah, no, no worries. Uh, so one lesson that I, wanna, I want people to take away from uh, the actions that you took. So in the parasitic mind, I explained the difference between virtue signaling and costly signaling. And I link it to, well, my field of evolutionary psychology. So a, for, for a signal to be honest... It has to be costly. It has to be handicapping, right? So, for example, the peacock's tail is precisely a, a handicapping signal because despite the fact that it reduces the survivability of the peacock by virtue of it not being able to flee predators, by, it, by virtue of it being more conspicuous to predators, it evolves because now the peahens, the females of that species, can look at the peacock's tail and use it as an honest signal of the peacock's phenotypic quality. Therefore, when I engage in an act that is supposed to exhibit my commitment to an idea, it has to be costly. If it's platitudinous, hashtag je suis Charlie, hashtag French flag when the Bataclan incident happens, that simply shows to me that you are a fraud and a coward because everybody can meet that signal. So in your case, the fact that you didn't just write the letter, which requires, quote, courage. I say, quote, because in a, in a, in a rational society, that sh it shouldn't require such courage to write such a letter. But the fact that you said, and I'm going to withdraw my daughter, that now enters you into the handicapping realm because you are saying, even though I am going to bear a genuine cost, I'm willing to take this. So for all the people who are watching and listening to this podcast, that's what you should be doing. If you truly want to be courageous, you have to incur a cost. Or as my good friend, and I wonder what you think of him because you were an investment banker, Nassim Talib, he's got a book titled... Uh, skin in the game, right? Uh, so you have to have skin in the game, otherwise you're just being a bullshitter. What, what are your thoughts on that? I think that's right. I, look, I, I, I don't, I'm, I'm sort of careful talking about sort of the, the, the courage and cowardice issue. I mean, I, I know people view me as sort of, you know, courageous and brave. I, I don't, re and I get it, obviously. Um, but, you know, I wasn't cancelable. So I didn't feel like professionally I was risking 
that much to do that. I did get canceled. I was a, uh, a an advisor to the students at Columbia Business School for 10 years. Not very active in recent years. And a couple of days after the letter, I did get the, uh, we no longer require your services. Oh, I was going to ask you when I yeah. was going to introduce you. I saw yeah. a career coach at Columbia Business yeah. School. So, okay, so you answered Emeritus that question. now. So okay. they did cancel me a little okay. bit, but again, I wasn't active and it, I, I expected it. It's fine. Um, but otherwise not cancelable. So I, I never really view, and the fact that we had already decided to remove our daughter. So I never really view this as, you know, that courageous or brave, but obviously other people do. Listen, I get it. If you're going to lose your job and you, you know, it, it's very hard to be courageous. I mean, this cancel culture is such, such a parasite right now. Uh, so pervasive. And I don't fault. I wish other parents would speak up. I think some should, especially the wealthy ones that really can't afford, you know, to do this. Um, but I, I, I'm, you know, I don't try to go out and call the parents cowards for not speaking up. Teachers, especially, and there are a lot of teachers that are very unhappy with what's going on. There's been a few in the news. In fact, one the Paul Rossi guy, correct? Paul Rossi. There's a new one uh, in a, in a uh, independent school in New Jersey that oh, came Oh yes, out. yes, I heard about that one too. Yes. Um, so that's real. I, I've said this because I've done a number of podcasts and with Paul Rossi, and I've met him now with friends. Um, what he did was really courageous because he did risk his job, and I didn't. Uh, and this teacher, you know, this English teacher, a couple of days ago, also. Um, so you know, and it's really hard. I mean, they 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 need the income, they need a job, so it's really hard for teachers to do. It. Where there's real cowardice, and I have called people out. You know, the administrations of these schools. I remember the letter that yeah. was written as a rebuttal to yours, Jane something, I can't remember who it is. Jane Actually, yeah. I, I tagged her on Twitter. I started going after her yeah. because your letter was so traumatizing that you know okay. you needed you needed psychological counseling and people right. of color needed to be you know protected. Now I can take the liberty of mocking these imbeciles, and I'll use less diplomatic terms than you, yeah. because I went through the Lebanese civil war as a Lebanese Jew, where mm. I didn't know from second to second where if my head was going to be blown in the next few seconds. Therefore, I'm not very empathetic to full cries of yeah. victimhood. So maybe the fact that I have my personal history gives me a bit more leeway to attack them more frontally than it gives you, which by itself is a sad reality because why should my prior actual victimhood grant me greater license to attack these these folks than you than, than you would yeah no no i mean there's cowardice there and cowardice in corporate boardrooms um I, you know i i it, it's i and i don't have i don't know how we solve this issue but but what you just brought up is one of these bigger issues that i'm sure you know you've talked about which is this hypersensitivity this false faux victimhood and i even wrote that in my letter there was one line about uh you know hypersensitivity and um you know over um Oversensitivity to criticism, whatever it was, I forget what I said. Oh, this can't the safety culture, yeah, which which has become pervasive, and you know everything, and they're using these terms completely inappropriately. So the letter that that the head of school, Jane Free, sent to the whole Brearley uh, community, which was highly ridiculed both within the school and outside the school, and on Tucker Carlson, and you did it, you know, a lot of people did it. It was you know these girls felt uh, uh, frightened. Yeah. to receive a letter to their home. Now, it wasn't even addressed to them. These upper school, high school girls. And everybody made the same point that I did, which is that, you know, really has prided itself for 140 years on producing intellectually courageous girls. And this is exactly the opposite. You're telling people they are frightened by a letter in the mail. They are frightened by the words on a piece of paper. And then they go further to your point, and they use these words like violate. 
it is a violence like words that that you know are used for rape right to have a letter in the mail that are completely inappropriate but this is what this movement has done it has been brilliant that i know you've written about this this crt movement this postmodernist movement this social justice movement has been absolutely brilliant it has co-opting these words and making it so hard to fight against if you're not anti-racist you're racist if you're not a principal activist you're a bad silence person. is violence you know, meritocracy stuff. We have to fight back yeah. on these definitions. But you know, going back to the courage question, until we get more people that show the courage to do it, we're not making a whole lot of progress. Well, listen. You know, I tell you something. I I was worried. I think we talked before yesterday whether yeah. we would have enough to discuss. We've almost gone an hour, so. I apologize for not having gotten to some of the other topics. Maybe okay. maybe we'll do so at some future time. Yeah. Uh, you know, look, Andrew, I'm uh, I'm delighted that a person like you exists because as someone who has been fighting this nonsense for a very long time, every new voice that comes in that could compel people to speak out is a you know voice from from the gods even though i'm not much of a believer uh so thank you for your courage keep doing what you're doing uh update me on your you know any projects that you might be working on in the future as a result of uh you know where you are currently uh, a delight for you to come on the show i'm going to stop the recording but then we'll just say goodbye officially offline uh thank you so much is there anything you'd like to plug in terms of a a project that people are not familiar with so far that you'd like to use this platform sure. to promote yeah, I, I put up a really quick website when I had an op-ed in the New York Post just for a way to people to contact me. So it's speakupforeducation.org, speakupforeducation.org, which, you know, it gives you an update. I'll send out a newsletter uh, to people that want it, and it'll update people on what I'm up to and some stuff like that. So um, not plugging anything more than that, just as a way to keep in contact if anybody wants to contact me. But I'll say this. I thank you for all you've done on this fight because you have been fighting this for much, much longer than I have. And we need everybody that we can to join this fight. And Thanks, this, is a, this is a fight. And I've tried to make this point. We are losing, I think, right now, desperately, especially in our education system. But we need as many people to do this. So to you, I commend for doing this for much, much longer than I have, which is about seven weeks. <laughs> well, I appreciate your kind words. Stay online, uh, Andrew. Real pleasure meeting you. Let me stop the recording.